it's been a good weekend for me. I'm not sure about you, but it's been a great weekend for me. Um, we had Thanksgiving, so I got to eat a lot this past weekend, which was great. Um, and then also, we went and got our Christmas tree. My wife is the you know, day after Thanksgiving. We got to go get the Christmas tree kind of person. But, you know, th- that wasn't necessarily what I grew up with, but she loves it. So we do that. And so that was fun. The kids love it. They've been, you know, knocking everything off of it all week, weekend. And, um, you know, we haven't throw away broken ornaments, those kind of things. Um, and yesterday, uh, the Gamecocks beat Clemson like 34-17. So <clears throat> that was awesome um, in and of itself. So it's, it's been an awesome weekend. There's also been a couple things that have, uh, that have happened over the weekend that have kind of given me pers- some perspective as well. Um, as you know, some of you know, we're, we're, in, a, we're in a network of, of church plants called the Acts 29 Network. And um, there's a couple different pastors um, that had a couple things happen this weekend that are pretty tragic. Um, one uh, just found out that he has a, uh, a mass somewhere on his frontal lobe, and he's going to have to figure out what kind of surgery and things are, are going to happen. And another pastor um, passed away this weekend. So there's, there's, um, there's great things, but there's also reminders that we live in a fallen world, that, that reminders that we live in a, in a short life, that, things that are sobering to us. Um, and so um, as great things happen in our lives, um, and then these other things kind of happen, we should be reminded... That life is short. Um, it, it's easy for us, I think, sometimes, especially when we're younger, um, to kind of think we're invincible. We're going to live forever. But as life keeps happening and you get older and you get more gray hair and you can't move as fast and you start realizing you're not invincible, that you're not going to live forever. And then you hear stories of people, um, even younger guys, that have things like this happen to them. And so it kind of puts a perspective on you. And so I'm hoping that this morning as we're going to this text... Um, that we're going to be reminded that there's there's things in our life that should remind us that life is short, life is fragile, and we should we should take our life very seriously and not be the kind of people that want to um, just kind of float through life and get by. And maybe one day, off in the future, when things change, we'll we'll think about getting serious. Um, if you have your Bible, as I said, we're going to be in First Timothy chapter four. You can go ahead and open up there. Um, we started First Timothy chapter four last week, and so. Um, We're going to finish it this week, but all of this chapter is one big, huge idea. It's all saying the same thing. And so what I want to do this morning is there's 10 things in here that I want us to see in in 1 Timothy 4. We're going to talk about the uh, five that we talked about last week really fast, just so everybody can get caught up to speed. And then we're going to go up the next ones. But if you would look at with me at verse one and let me let me let you see what I see so we can all um be on the same page as, and understand what we're looking at. Look at verse 1. It tells us, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Um, whenever I was a youth minister, I got a call from a mom. And she said, I've got, I've got a daughter that I knew um, that was pretty active for a while in our youth group. And she said, uh, she's... She's kind of been away from church. She's she's kind of choosing a lifestyle now that's not pleasing to Christ. And and I was wondering if you could talk to her. Um, and I was like, all right. So uh, I go over to their house and I'm talking to her <clears throat> for hours. I mean, three, four hours. I'm just standing there talking to her and um, sitting there, actually. But as we're as we're talking, the conversation moves on, moves forward, moves forward. And we get to this point where we finally have addressed, and I, I have a good understanding of what's going on. She understands. And so I said, all right, here's the deal. You're choosing actively to engage in 
just sin that Jesus absolutely is against. Um, Christians shouldn't just willfully choose this. This isn't a decision that Christians should make. Yes, I want all of that sin instead of Jesus. Right now, I'm, they shouldn't just look at me in the face and say, um, that's what I want. But that's where she was. And so I, I'm saying, all right, here's the deal. You're at the moment. You're at the point right now where the Bible clearly teaches um, you're going to make this decision and go off into sin and actively reject Jesus, which is going to show us all of this fruit that we thought we saw until this point was not fruit. You're going to show us that all along the way, as you've been walking, as we thought that you were in the faith, that you're not in the faith. And so it's telling us that the spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Now, when it says depart from the faith, this is this is the word apostasy. This is showing that they become an apostate. They leave the faith. Um, the whole of the scriptures show us that when they do that, that they never were Christians. Um, we believe that once you're truly saved, you're always saved. Once you become a Christian, you'll persevere to the end. But... Um, and, and I want all of you to, to feel this with me, because I don't know. Some of you probably have felt this. You sat across from someone like I have and you get to that point in the conversation, which says, if you choose this. You're walking away. What you're saying is I want hell. Over Jesus. Someone in your life may one day say, I want hell over Jesus. Maybe someone in your life has already said, I want hell over Jesus. The weight of that, the gravity of that should fall on your shoulders, not in some kind of lighthearted, whatever, flippant kind of manner. The truths of that should shake you to your core, that you will know people. There will be people in your life that will have looked like they're in the faith. They will have looked like they were um, with you in the faith walking and they're going to one day say, that sin, that thing over there looks more engaging to me. That lifestyle is something I want. As a matter of fact, Christy, <clears throat> my wife, um, she's at home. We, all three of our kids have these nasty coughs. Um, but she called me this morning. I was sitting in the parking lot. I got here early and I was just sitting in the parking lot reading and praying. And uh, she sends me a text. Can I, can I call you right now? So I call her back and I'm like, what's up? She goes, uh, a friend of ours in college that was a great friend of ours. Um, as a matter of fact, she she did some work in contemporary Christian music right after, right out of college. Um, she said in her in her little email that she had just got Christy had just gotten from her. Um, I uh, I live in a homosexual lifestyle right now. I don't really tell anybody from college anymore. But you know I'm not, I'm not really walking with Christ anymore. There's going to be people in your life that you love dearly. Um, that are going to walk away. And she says, I, I know that once I tell some of, some of these people this, this is the email. I know when I tell some of pe- people this, that they, they don't want to have anything to do with me anymore. They feel like it's something they can't do. And I'm like, Christy, this is a time where you got to dig in more. You got to, I mean, I know she doesn't live in our state, but you got to, you got to email. You got to stay in contact with her as much as you can. Um, we, we should know that this is going to happen. But there's hope. There's hope that this is going to happen. You should feel this weight. You should feel this gravity. You should know this is going to happen because there's have been times where I've sat on the other side of people and I've we've had a conversation. We've got it to the point where I was like, you are making a decision right now. You have to choose Jesus or never been a Christian. You're going to walk away. And I've had had I've had times where they've said Jesus 
and they've come back into the faith. And it's just been a glorious time of I've seen them grow. So it, it can go either way. And we are at a you can't I can't make someone love Jesus. We can't make them see the beauty. As a matter of fact, they can't make themselves love and see the beauty of Jesus. We are completely at the mercy of God. As John 3 says, you must be born again. And then right after that, in John 3, 8, um, he's telling us that this Holy Spirit moves where he wants. He blows where he wants, that no one sees, no one knows how it comes. But the Holy Spirit of God will just come into someone's heart and awaken their affections and awaken their desires for Christ. We are at the absolute, complete mercy of the Holy Spirit in this regard. So we have to pray. We have to be as as responsible as we can to hold out Christ, to hold out the gospel to people, to preach them, teach them, live the kind of life we should have, be in the faith. But at the end of the day, we're at the complete mercy of Christ to move in their hearts, to awaken their affections for him. Some will depart, but there's hope. Look at verse 16. Look what it says. Now, this is this is Paul talking to Timothy. Timothy's a pastor over a church, and he's going to tell them 10 ways that you can keep this from happening. He's going to say some are going to become apostates. However, look what he says. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. This this is verses 1 through 15. If you persist in these things I just told you, look what happens. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Some are going to leave the faith. Verse 1. If you persist in these things that I'm telling you, you can prevent some leaving from the faith. As a matter of fact, you will save yourself and your hearers. Now, clearly, we don't save people. I'm not saying that you're going to actively be the person that saves them. God saves them. We know that. Um, but the Bible does here literally say you will save both yourself and your hearers. So I'm just staying true to the text when I say you can save them. On, I know overall God saves people. I know that. But we see that if we persist in this, we can prevent to some degree apostasy. Like it says in verse one. And so what we looked at last week, five things, and we have five more things this week that we want to look at so that um, there can be people in our lives that we know there will be people leaving, but we can do everything we can to bring them back. We can have the conversations that will bring them back. We can live the life that will bring them back. We can pray for them in such a way that will bring them back because we don't want, honestly, we don't want people to choose hell over Jesus. I mean, we're talking about hell, not some temporary lifestyle, not some temporary punishment, eternal conscious torment forever, separation from God forever. It should break our hearts that some people would actively choose that over Jesus. So here's a little review of some of the things that we talked about. The first one is this. Um. In verses 3 through 5, we should receive created things from God with thanksgiving. We should receive created things. Um, that means <clears throat> God has created everything. He's created everything good. Um, and so since everything is created good, we should receive these things with thanksgiving. And if we live our lives um, showing that whenever God's given us things that are created, we live a life of thanksgiving, giving praise back to him, not um, putting our worship on those particular things then we, we show the world 
who Jesus is and we show the world that he's more precious to us than these created things. Um, the specific uh, the specific examples in this text were marriage and food. We're not going to jump into that. You can you can grab that whole sermon off the podcast um, off iTunes from last week. The next one is that we will remind people, <clears throat> remind them that people will depart and to not be legalistic. Um, remind people that people are going to depart from the faith and keep reminding them, don't do that. Come back. And if people <clears throat> want to worship these created things rather than the creator, then they're going to become legalists. And so we want to remind them not to be legalistic, not to worship created things, but to worship God. Um, the next one is that we should train ourselves in the words and in the faith and of the good doctrine. Basically, this means um, that we should be studiers of the Bible, not just kind of people that come in here on Sundays and, and hear the only time we're in the Bible is if if you hear me teaching the scriptures to you or just people that just podcast, just listen to sermons online the rest of the week. We should for ourselves also be in the word. It's good to read systematic theology. It's good to read old dead guys. It's good to read all the new guys who, <clears throat> for most part, who are writing things about Christ. But all those things should go by the wayside if we if we don't read this. We have to read this. His word is the primary thing that helps us see Christ and see the beauty of Christ. So should we we should be studiers of the word. We should train ourselves. Literally, that word is nourish. We should find our nourishment, our daily living in the things of God. The next one is that we should stay away from irreverent, silly myths. Um, literally, that's um, basically old wives' tales, old womanish fables. We should stay away from these things, um, which basically just means there's there's things um, that people think are true now that aren't necessarily biblical, and we shouldn't try to listen to worldly advice, the Oprahisms of the world. We should we should seek the scriptures and find the truth in the scriptures. That's the fourth one. The fifth one is this. And this is a little bit different than the third one. The third one was nourish ourselves um, with studying the word. This one is train ourselves for godliness. One is learning knowledge. The other one is making ourselves more holy. One is learning things about God. That's number three. This one is finding sin and putting it to death. Sure, we can learn things. You can be a great study of the word. You can read this book, this book over and over and over and memorize, memorize, memorize. However, that's not the end. That's not the goal. Um, the goal is also to see sin um, decrease and decrease and decrease in your life. All those things are for the glory of Christ so that we can have him. So if we if we do those five things and there's five more, we should around us be influencing people that are on this precipice, that are on this this place where they're going to either walk away or stay. We should be finding ourselves um, with the ability to have conversations with people that will pull them back. Because people all over that we know kind of grew up in church. They they um, especially in the South, they grew up in church. They knew all the things they went to RAs, they went to Bible drill. They learned all those things all their life. Um, and then they went to college and then they went crazy because they had freedom and they walk away. I mean, how many people do you know that that's the case? Almost every single testimony I hear is at 18, I went to college, I went crazy. I had a, I got married or I had a child. I came back at 23, 24, and now I'm back in church again. And I think I'm saved for the first time. Or, which is the tragedy, they walk away at 18 or 19 or 20 and they never come back. And so you have the ability to be salt and light. You have the ability to be Christ in these people's lives, knowing that some will walk away 
that you can bring them back. So we're going to look at these other five. We're going to look at these other five um, ways that we can live our lives to be able to bring these people back um, into the faith. All right, so let's look at verse 9. Let's look at verse 9. It says, because, I'm starting at verse 9 because I didn't read it last week, um, but it really kind of goes with verse 8. Um, verse 8 says, While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Which is basically saying, you can train your body physically and get it strong and, and built out and all that kind of stuff, which is good. But that's only going to affect until you die. That's, that's only going to make you look big, look strong, be healthy for 70 years. So don't just train yourself in that. Train yourself in something that's also eternal. Train yourself for godliness, which is a value in every way because it holds promise, not just for the present life. Working out holds promise for the present life. It makes you look good. Um, it, it makes you look buff. It makes all the people around you think, wow, he's big. She's awesome. I want to be like them physically. But also it says it holds life for the life to come. So you can affect eternity training yourself for godliness. You can't affect eternity by being able to bench press 225. You can't. You know what? In your coffin, you know how much you can bench press? Zero. So don't just work yourself out physically for this life. Work your, work, train yourself for godliness for eternity. Because you can, you can right now affect eternity and godliness, which is of more value. And so he tells us in verse 9... The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That's the same little verse. Uh, this is just for your information. It's the same little phrase he used in 115 when he says, this thing is trustworthy and full, deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Um, Paul does that every once in a while. It's the exact same phrase he uses in 115. That's just for you nerds. All right, 10. <clears throat> it's really of no significance. He just said it twice. Um, all right. Now we're going to verse 10. I say nerds because I'm a nerd too. All right. Anyway. Um, now, look what it says in verse 10. It says, for to this end. All right. Let me just stop here and let me let, let, let you know what this end is. This end is Christ. This end is at the end of your life. When you stand before Jesus, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's the end. That's the telos. The Greek word, that's the end, that's the goal, that's, that's what we're striving for, that's what we're shooting for. That's the end, for this end. We don't want to stand there and him say, I gave you all the stuff, what were you thinking? Why'd you waste your life? You had all these resources, you had all these people, you had all these things around you, and you wasted it. You want him to say, well done, good and faithful servant. We certainly don't want him to hear him say, I never knew you. But for those that are Christians, I do believe that there are going to be people who are Christians that will also hear, you know... Gave you a lot of stuff and you sure did waste a lot. All right, so to this end, look what it says. To this end, we toil and strive. Now, this is a typical description of the Christian life for Paul. Toil and strive. He doesn't say that we coast and walk. He doesn't say that it's ease and comfort. He says that it's toil and strife. The, the life that pursues Christ is one of toil and strife. So look at your life. Let's take a little perspective shot here. Toil and strife. Don't be lazy. Now, this is written to pastors. Clearly, this is written to pastors. So if a pastor is really good at a certain hobby, if he's really good at um, hunting or golf or whatever, he probably might not be a good pastor. Um, pastors shouldn't have that much free time. 
our free time comes when we die. Um, however, just because this is written to pastors doesn't mean there's not applications for you. Um, if you are really good at a hobby, it could be. It might not be, but it could be. Maybe you're not doing a very good job at Christian life. Maybe that hobby brings God glory. Maybe the fact that you're really good at it um, makes you um, have influence with people and brings people around you. For example, um, Cameron is good at guitar. That's good that he's good at guitar. It's a hobby. Um, some people, like I play guitar for a hobby. Um, all I do is play this old man with my children and Jesus loves me during our family devotion times. It's a hobby for me. But for Cameron, it's more than a hobby. It's something that he uses, um, that God uses so that he can come here and lead a whole church, a congregation into worship. So hobbies aren't bad. We, we can be good at them. However, if you have a bunch of hobbies that you're good at, that you're not necessarily using as a gift for the glory of Christ, but just for yourself, just to get good at, maybe, maybe you're missing the Christian life. You know, if you're really good at changing the channels on the remote, like no one else can do it like you, <laughs> maybe you're missing out. Maybe you're, you're not getting this Christian life down. Um, let me read this. Let me read this. Um, this commentary. This is the New Testament commentary on, on this particular text. And I want you to ask yourself how you're doing on this. This is what he says. <clears throat> Speaking about Christians who toil and strive. He says they exert themselves to the utmost in the work of bringing the gospel. This is a description of Christian's life. They exert themselves to the utmost in the work of bringing the gospel. How, how are we doing so far? How are we doing? Are we exerting ourselves to the utmost in bringing the gospel to people? Applying it to concrete situations. We're warning, we're admonishing, we're helping and encouraging generally among great difficulties. We toil and strive. We don't just coast and lollygag and move around. Um, the, the, the holidays, especially for me, are, are the worst. I don't know about you. For me, stopping and having all this free time and people around and, and all these other responsibilities like setting up and decorating and bringing in stuff and bringing out and having to... All that just distracts me spiritually. I'd rather just have a schedule and plug through life where we're not celebrating all these holidays. It might be the opposite for you. It might be the only time you get to stop and get to kind of pull back and read your Bible and etc. But um, for me, it, it just becomes more distracting than anything else. But the life of our, our Christian life is to be marked by toil and strife. Um, we need to be able to have focus, striving to always have focus. Um, why? Why should we always as Christians toil and strive rather than just have ease and comfort or just kind of walk and, and whatever? It tells us right after why. All right, this is what it says. For to this end, we toil and strive because so we we ha should have a, a life marked with with hardship because we have our hope set on the living God, which means if you don't have a life of toil and strife, perhaps you don't have your hope set on the living God. You have your hope set on something else. This is the sixth thing. This is number six. A way that we're going to endure to be able to shine a light out to those who will walk away and pull them back is we set our hope on Christ and nothing else. We set our hope on Christ and nothing else. And that's marked by a life of toil and strife. Your sister, your brother, 
your friend, your parent that you want to become a Christian or who's on the precipice of apostasy. They're on the 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 point of walking away that you pray for continually. There should be toil and strife. There should be in your life a mark of toil and strife. And when they see that, they're going to see that you are setting your hope on Christ and nothing else. Hope means, biblically, this word hope means to wait for salvation with joy and full confidence. With joy and full confidence. You are focused on Jesus. Whenever I was um, in seminary, whenever I was in seminary, I had to um, go to West Virginia and... While I was in West Virginia, <clears throat> this like massive snow came. I don't know if y'all remember this huge snow. I think it snowed here in Rock Hill. It was in 2000, 2001. It was like a foot deep here. Well, when I lived in Raleigh, it was pretty bad. And I was in West Virginia and I had to get back to Raleigh that night. And this just amazing snow came down. And so Christy and I, <clears throat> we decided, well, we got to get home. We got to leave now. And so we left West Virginia and we're driving. I mean, it was the worst it was the worst drive I've ever experienced in my entire life. I've never driven in, I'm not, I grew up in South Carolina. You know, we don't, I don't drive in snow. When it snows, I'm just like, I'm staying home. You know, everybody can do what they want. I'm going to wreck eventually. So I'm not going to do it. So <clears throat> we're driving home. I'm scared to death of snow. Um, it was starting to snow so bad. I was on Interstate 85. It was starting to snow so bad. Um, there was three lanes and um, the first two lanes were just full of snow. There was only one lane that ha- kind of had two little tire marks that you could that you could go on. And so we're going about 40 or 45 um, forever. It took forever. And we're going down this little thing. And I just I am not going to at all move over. I'm not going to speed up. I'm not going to slow down. I'm just kind of like hands on 10 and two, like squeezing as far as I can. And I'm scared to death that we're going to die, you know. And so cars would come up behind me and they're just riding my tail. And I'm like, sorry, dude, I'm not moving. You're going to have to go around me. I'm not going to move over so you can go. You can forget it. And so they get all crazy and they, they drive around me. And as they drive around me, they spin out and spin off into the thing. And I'm like, I'm at this point, right? This point where I'm like, all right, what do I do? Like the good Samaritan stops and helps. But I'm afraid if I stop and help, I can't get going again. So I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? I'm just like, oh, forgive me, God. I keep going. So, I mean, that's just what I did. So I'm, I'm focused like as, as much as I can. And so another 18 wheeler comes up and a car comes up behind it. And 18 wheeler just speeds off in front of me. But another car tries to zoom around, goes off again. I'm, I'm serious. Just cars wrecking everywhere, all over the place. And I'm just like, these people are stupid. Slow down. What is wrong with you? And I just don't understand why they they want to drive so insane. <clears throat> probably a bunch of Southerners. We don't know what we're doing. Um, but me, just, I know the pace that's keeping me safe. I know the pace that's keeping me alive. 40, not 55 like these imbeciles. 40, and I'm staying just like this. And I'm focusing, I'm not switching all around. I am like a laser focused on the goal. That's it. And I think that that is exactly what we're talking about here. Our life should not be influenced by things coming around us trying to take us off. We know the pace. The pace of the Christian life is um, it's strenuous, it's tough, it's hard, it's a difficult road. The road is narrow, Matthew 7 says. There's no reason to try to speed off and try to be the super Christian you're not. There's no reason to slow down and act like you can't do anything. Stay focused or you're going you're gonna to fly off the side of the road and you're going to wreck. We have to set our hope on Christ and not anything else with full confidence that we will get there. Well, I eventually got there, but it was awful. I mean, it was awful. Um, no cell phones then. 
back in the time when we didn't have cell phones. My parents were freaking out. All right, so here we are. Um, we should know this. We should know that Paul is writing this verse, and, and as he usually writes with toil and strife, he's, he's writing to these people um, with suffering in mind. I, I know we, we don't think this way. Um, when we think of toil and strife, we're not necessarily thinking in the same categories Paul is, but these are some of the things that he's, he's talking about. He's talking about <clears throat> um, all the things that happen to, the godly, that, to godly people, like poverty, cold, nakedness, hunger, banishments, and prison, scourgings, and persecutions. This, this is what was commonplace in the first century. And that's why he says, toil and strife, however, set your hope on Christ and Christ alone. When you do this, we know the result, which is verse 16. You'll save yourself. You'll save your hearers. All right. So what are you setting yourself? What are you setting your hope on? What is it that you set it, that you set your hope on? Are you setting your hope on comfort? Are you setting your hope on money? Are you setting your hope, hope on um, achievements of conquering the next girl or guy? Are you setting your hope on um, a job or a girl or whatever? What are you setting your hope on? Because here's the deal. If you're not setting your hope on Christ, then the achievement of that thing becomes the thing that you think will save you. And you will do everything you can to have that. It becomes your savior, not Jesus, but that. And when you finally get it, you're let down. So what's your savior? Is it, are you setting your hope on Christ Who's the only one that can satisfy you? Or are you setting your hope on anything else which is becoming your savior? All right. That's the first one. Now, we're going into the second half of verse 10. This is a little bit of a digress. Um, I think I'm doing okay on time. Not doing okay on time at all. Um, but I got to talk about this. And, and this is fun. This is fun stuff. Um, this is a little bit of a digress. And I think that we'll all enjoy this fun exercise. But... <clears throat> I have to answer, I have to go through every verse. It's the great thing about preaching through books. You have to talk about verses maybe you wouldn't always do. The second part of verse 10 is great. Let's look at it. Um, it's especially controversial. Look what it says. We've set our hope on the living God. Who is? Here it is. Who is? Now, we talked about this a little bit in verse, in chapter 2, I don't know how many weeks ago. Um, but I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but let's look what it says. Who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe? All right. So all you Calvinists, calm down. We're going we're gonna to answer this. All right, but let's, let's think about what this is saying. Let's think about what this is saying. Who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The, the wording is so key that we, we think about every single word that he's talking about. All right, there's three possibilities that I can see in here. Um, number one is universalism. Um, it says he is the Savior of all people. Universalism means that everyone will be saved. It doesn't matter what religion they are. They're all on a pathway towards salvation. There is no hell. The reason why people believe universalism is because they have a, a extreme discomfort with the fact that the God who creates everything would also create this place called hell and that he would actually send the people there for eternity. That can't be a loving God. How can God be loving and send people to hell? That doesn't make sense. So what he must do is... Um, this is their speculation, is that everyone goes to heaven. He's the savior of all people. So um, whatever path of religion you choose, as long as you stay true to that, you're going to be saved. And even those who don't even do that, God, because he's so loving, he loves everyone, is going to save everyone. He's the savior of all people. That's, that's one direction that we can go. Universalism, that everyone is saved. 
Christian, Mormon, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, whatever, atheist, he still saves them all. And from the Christian perspective, they'll say, when they look at this verse, that's true because when Jesus died on the cross for the sins of everyone, everyone's sin was forgiven, unlike this huge blanket forgiveness, and that everyone is covered whether they realize it or not, and everyone goes to heaven. That's one choice, universalism. Clearly, the scriptures don't teach that. I mean, the whole of the Bible, it, this verse can't mean that because we know that Jesus talks about people who go to hell continually in the Gospels. So we know that there is a hell and we know that people go there. It, it breaks our heart that that's the case. But that's not what we want. So that's one. That's one possibility. The next possibility when it says, <clears throat> who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The other possibility is what we would know as um, this the idea that the atonement is for everyone, the dying of Christ is for everyone, that he's the savior of everyone, but namely those who believe. Um, he's the savior of everyone, but especially of, of those who believe. And this is kind of like, all right, um, Jesus is everyone's savior. And when you choose him, then especially the ones that believe who put their faith in him, then he's their savior, which is true for those people who put their faith in him. Absolutely. But it doesn't take away the fact that those who don't put their faith in him, it still calls Jesus their savior. And what is he saving them from? If they're going to hell, then he's not their savior. Then it still doesn't make sense. So um, while that sounds pretty good, it's not exactly right because he can't be their savior if they go to hell. So there's another word, there's another possibility here, um, which most of the commentaries I read hold to this. And so I think this is, I think it's a good, good thing. This, this word savior or soter in the Greek um, doesn't necessarily always mean salvifically. It doesn't always mean that it has to do with your salvation. Um, it can mean just in the sense that um, you've been saved, like your life has been saved. Here's what I mean. <clears throat> you... Last night, this morning, and on the way home today, and tonight and tomorrow, the rest of the week, are going to commit sins. I am going to commit sins. We are going to continually commit sins. Um, the right punishment for those sins is hell. Or the right consequences of some of our sins um, should be a lot more than what we experience. I've done some stuff in my life where the consequences seem to be pretty minimal. Where they should have been pretty, they should have been a whole lot more according to what I see. Some people don't get that. And so God is continually saving me from those consequences. He's showing me what, what most people, what we as Christians call common grace. Um, just like in the same sense, if, if I was in a burning building and, and a man, a fireman came in and, and pulled me out from the building, I would say he saved my life. It doesn't mean that he is my savior. Like he, I'm, I'm going to heaven now because of him. It just means he saved my life. And that's the same sense here that there are, there are continually times where God is showing you common grace in your life and he's saving you. He's saving you. He's saving you from things that you don't die right then. He is the savior of. Not in the salvific sense, but the Savior as in common grace sense of all people. He continually saves Christians and non-Christians from things. All right. Now, this argument that he's making is starting with the general and narrowing into the specific. So he's the Savior of all people. Christians and non-Christians, he saves us from death and destruction and consequences of sin continually. And look what it says after this. 
especially and the key word is especially that's what that's what makes us see it. There's got to be this, especially of those who believe. So he's the, he's a savior of all people in the sense that he keeps them from death because they deserve it. But for those that are believers, especially for those who believe. For those who put their faith in Christ, he's not just the, their savior from common gra- or their savior with common grace from from saving them from consequences of sin, but also for those who believe, he's their savior salvifically. He is their one who saves them in the sense that now they don't experience life separated from him, but they experience heaven. Those who put their faith in him not only experience common grace, but salvific grace. So put your faith in him today. Believe in him. If you don't know him, Put your faith in him this morning. He is your savior. He's your only hope for heaven. Become a Christian this morning. Have your sins forgiven. Um, Christ came who didn't know sin and became sin for us. And God put all of his righteous wrath on him that we deserved. And we now get his righteousness. So all of God's righteousness is put on us. All All the sin, all the punishment for sin was put on him. Luther calls this the great exchange. You can, by faith, receive his righteousness and it will be imputed to you. Put your faith in him this morning. Become a Christian. Experience this salvific faith. All right. Now, um, we're not doing very good on time. Let's keep going. Verse 11. It says, command and teach these things. Now, this is talking to a pastor. This is the seventh one. This is straight out of the text. This is the seventh one. If the pastor, and not just the pastor, but you, will command and teach these things. These things are the things we've talked about previously in these verses. Um, If you will command and teach these things to the people you know, then you'll save them. You'll save them. God will save them, but God will use you to save them. So this is the seventh one. Command and teach these things. Don't just give suggestions. Don't just give opinions. Don't just give advice. Command these things. Teach these things to them. They need to hear that that you don't say, you know what you might could do is this. Um, maybe if you try this, then you'd be okay. My advice is this. This is what the scriptures say. This is what truth is. I, I'm not commanding you. God is. But we are you being used by God as the mouthpiece of him to command and teach you. This is what the scriptures say. Walk in this. And when you when you are that bold, not in a sense where you're arrogant, not in a sense where no one wants to be around you because you think you're better than everyone in the most humble Christ like way with the most Christ like attitude you can have. You command and teach these things. You say, I don't have it all together. (laughs) I'm not pretending to have it all together by any means, but. I know what the scriptures say. This is what I've experienced in my life. This is not what my advice is for you. This is what God is telling you and what he's told me. Don't walk down this path. Don't do these things. And if you'll do that, if you'll have that boldness and that humility. You'll save people. God will. All right. Um, And this this is really a. a, uh, This is a challenge for 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 pastors today, I think. Um, It's a big challenge for me every week to be. um, Not try to be innovative with entertainment, 
not try to come in here and just say, all right, um, what's the newest thing that I can do to try to get you all riled up and emotional to go out there and live a week uh, the next week? However, the best thing I can do is be faithful to the scriptures to come in here and teach these things. Um, not try to be someone else, but try to just be faithful to who I am and faithfully teach the scriptures to you to come. Because remember, this is written to pastors. These these things are directly towards me um, or elders. However, these are things that you can clearly get application from. So um, I think that we can agree on a couple of things. As I come here every week and try to command and teach these things. Um, all pastors, I just had a conversation with somebody about this yesterday. All pastors, because of the world we live in, where you can go, and honestly, you can listen to guys that are just insanely good online. I mean, just incredible speakers. Incredible. Guys that I listen to with you, that just blow my mind. They can just say whatever, and you're going you're gonna, to like change your life. Um, but for me, it's much more toil. It's much more strife. I have to come in here and just be as faithful as I can. Trust that God wants to use me to change your life as well, because this is the community, this is the body that you're in. And so there's a couple of things I've just been thinking. If I'm going to come in here and do these things, command and teach, not try to be the next creative, entertaining guy, but try to just be faithful to the scriptures. Um, I got to try my hearts to not try to be someone else. You got to also agree that you're not going to try to force me into that because that's just impossible. I can't be them. Um, but also when I come in here that I promise every week that I'm going to come in fully studied, fully prayed. I don't like the word prayed up, but fully prayed up. That I'm going to come in here having prayed for you, having prayed that the scriptures are going to do the work that they say they will not try to be somebody I'm not not try to do more that I think God is um, not try to do more outside of God's will. But just trust the scriptures to be the scriptures and that God's going to use them to change your life and that you're going to do the same. You're going to come in here week in, week out praying God use your scriptures whenever whenever FUD comes up and, and, and tries to to the best of his ability, command and teach the church the things of the scriptures, that you're going to come in here with an open heart, receptive to the things of God, knowing that it's not how creative I try to be, not as many stories as I try to tell, that I'm not going to try to be as funny as I can be just to keep you interested, but that the fact the word of God should be the things that interest you. Not all my stories. And that you're going to come in expecting to hear from God, not from me. And if we do that, the, both of those things, then... I'll save myself and I'll save my hearers. And you will do those things as well. When you have conversations with those people that are on the point of maybe walking away. <clears throat> All right, let's look at this. Um, let no one despise you for your... I'm in verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. All right. Um, I'm... We're all young here. I'm counting myself into the young crowd. Although, I just got a haircut yesterday and we have this little black deal that Christy, you know... I don't know. It's like a cape or whatever it is. But um, gray hair shows up on that like crazy. Like I've never seen so much gray hair on that. Th I don't understand why I have so much gray hair already. Um, but <clears throat> we're all I'm counting myself in the young deal here. But it says, let no one despise you for your youth. Now, we know um, we know most commentators will say that Timothy, who's the pastor of the church, was young. He was probably in his very, very late 30s. Um, I'm sorry, very, very late 20s, early 30s, somewhere in that range. So I'm, I'm, in, I'm 34. I'm somewhere in that same range that Timothy is. And so he's telling Timothy, Timothy, you're a pastor. You're a young pastor. Don't let anyone despise you because of your youth. Now, that doesn't just mean that people walk around 
and they look at young people and they just despise, despise. I don't like you because you're young. It's not it's not like they wish they were young and they just hate you because you're young. That's not what he's saying. He's not just saying um, just because you have younger age than them, they're going to hate you. That's not what he's saying. Let no one despise you for your youth. Why is he saying that? What's the point? Think about the folly of youth compared to the wisdom of age. Folly, the foolishness, the, the, the bad choices, the, the moronic decisions that we tend to make when we're younger compared to those who have been through life more, who have more wisdom, who don't seem to make quite all the bad choices that we make. Whenever you, you look at both and you see bad choices, and you see good choices, generally our, our first inclination is, Good choices. Well, I don't despise that. Bad choices? What in the world are you thinking? So this despise is like that. So he says, let no one despise you for your youth. Um, As a pastor, and really as a Christian, um, all of us should have on our shoulders um, the reality of what's really going on in life. Meaning, this is short. The book of James tells us that our life is very short. It's like like a, a vapor. Um, when you wake up in the morning and you walk out to your grass and you see the, the dew on the grass, by 10 a.m. it's gone. That dew on that grass, that's, the, that's your life. It's there in, right when you wake up, by 10 a.m. it's gone. The rest of life goes on. Your life is so short. And so because of that, as a Christian, as a pastor, there should be a reality of life that life is short and a weight, a gravity that... We need to be about the work of God, not about silliness and games and fun and whatever. But not that those things are necessarily always bad, but there should always be a seriousness or a weight in our shoulders that life is short. People are going to hell and we shouldn't be okay with that. We we shouldn't be okay with that. We should do things continually every day to try to make that not happen. And the folly of youth is that we live in such a way where we forget that way more. But the age of wisdom, or the wisdom of age, is because we know we're older and we feel it, we, we can't move quite as fast as we anymore, um, we have more weight in places that we don't want, our hair's falling out, all this kind of stuff. Um, age is happening to us, and so we see the world maybe in a little bit more reality than young people do. And we think about eternity more. And so he's telling a pastor, think about eternity. Think about the gravity of souls. There are people walking around who don't know Jesus. Live in such a way that that's true in your life now at at 20 and 30. Don't wait till 50 and 60 till you start living with that reality. Don't let anyone despise you for your youth because you don't live the way that you should live. All right, so look what he says here. Let no one despise you for your youth. But the reason why you should do this is because you should set, <clears throat> but set the believers an example. Let's stop right there. All right. So here, here's the, uh, here's the eighth one. Live as an example. So no one will despise you. Live as an example. So no one will despise you. Um, we're pretty good. We're pretty good at, uh, Hiding things. I've got a three-year-old. That's my middle child. Um, and every night when I, when I take her to bed, <laughs> um, or at nap time, I'll take her to bed and I'll put her in there. This is Karis. I'll put her in there and I'll cover her up 
and everything kind of looks good. I think right, everything's fine. I think she's going to go to sleep and then I'll, I'll give her a hug. And when I hug her, sometimes my hands will, will, will go under her pillow and I'll give her a hug and I'll feel like 85 toys that she stored away <laughs> underneath her pillow. And I'm pulling out these hands and these Barbies and these all kinds of stuff. I'm like, Harris, how do you have all things? She's, I have them on my pillow. She doesn't care. She's, she, but she, she's hiding things. She knows that she's not supposed to have these things, but she's hiding them. Um, the other day, she, we're, we're about to have dinner and we're all kind of walking into the bathroom or the sinks and we're getting our hands washed and all that kind of stuff. We're like, where's Karis? And she, she, we're about to eat right now and we can't find her. And so we're, Karis, where are you? She's not answering. Nothing. Karis, where are you? Where are you? And I see that the pantry um, is kind of closed, but not all the way. And I open it up. And she has a jar of peanut butter opened up and she's just digging her finger in there and just is eating. She's got peanut butter all over her face and all over her finger and I catch her and she just kind of looks at me. She knows she's busted. But why does she go in there and pull the doors behind her? Because <laughs> she knows that that's not what she's supposed to do. Why does she hide the toys under her pillow rather than just put them on top of the bed? Because even at three, we are aware of the things we're not supposed to do and we want to hide it. What is this saying? Set the example. Look what it says. Set the example. Live as an example so no one despise you. Um, be the example not just when people can see you, but when people don't see you. You can talk a good game in front of people. And, and, and honestly, I'm somewhat impressed by that. That's good. Somewhat. But I'm more impressed, and I think Jesus is more honored when we set the example when no one's watching. We set the example whenever <clears throat> no one's going to know those things. You can get away with, and, and believe me, all of us can get away with in private a multitude of sins. A multitude that no one could possibly ever find out. I mean, unless you're breaking the law. You can get away with a lot of stuff. Set the example. Now, let's look at what he uses, because he uses some, some words some specific examples of words that we should we should set example in. Look what he says. Speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. In speech, in your personal conversations. Now, I, I've just been convicted about this just this past week um, with my wife, Christy. I was reading in my devotions this past week, Ephesians 5. And in Ephesians 5, it says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Um, and so I'm thinking to myself, I'll, when I read the text, I'm all like, what am I falling? And every text I read, what, where am I falling short of this? Where am I falling short? So I'm reading Ephesians 5. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your life, um, out of your mouth. And I'm thinking, you know, back when I was stupid in 18, I used to cuss a lot, but not now. Um, just kind of gotten over that. You know, you have children. You, you can't even say certain words around them that you, we can say together as adults. Um, it sounded weird, but anyway. Um, so I'm thinking, where, where's the unwholesome? If there is unwholesome talk, God, that comes in my mouth, where is it? And I'm thinking, there's only one person. There's only one person that I feel that comfortable with and that safe around to have what could be, as a 34-year-old, you know, somewhat, praise God, somewhat sanctified, somewhat like Christ, and that's around my wife. I feel more comfortable around her to be, I'm not even off color, it's the only thing I can think of. And it's not that I'm like, horrible around her but there, i feel more more comfortable around her to let unwholesome talk come out of my wife than out of my life and out of my mouth than with anybody else and so i go to her that day and i'm like all right i'm reading in ephesians 5 today that i shouldn't let unwholesome talk come out of my mouth you're the only one that i feel comfortable with that happening and i i know i think about i do it 
I know there's certain, it's not like, it's not horrible things. Don't let your minds go, what is he saying? It's not like these horrible, terrible things where I'm cussing up a storm and I'm telling dirty jokes to her. I'm not, it's not that. Um, but if there ever is a time that it's going to happen, it's only with her. Because I feel more comfortable with her than anybody else. And I don't want to do it in front of other people. That's a sin. That's, that's awful. I shouldn't do it just because she's my wife and I know she's not going to give me judgment. So I tell her, from now on, you hold me accountable. Even with you, you're the only person that I think that this happens with. Anything that's unwholesome out of my mouth, you, you hold me accountable immediately. You tell me right away, you shouldn't have said that. And, and, and I'll do the same for you. And she's like, all right. So in speech, in personal conversation with everyone, you should have <clears throat> um, conversation that is an example. Look at these other things. And conduct. This is your customs. These are your habits. These are the way you deal with people. And all your conduct. The way you, the way you interact. Um, one thing. This is just one small example. But one, this is one thing I know that I do. Um, and I think this is. I don't want to call it sinful. But I know it's at least not very nice. Whenever I'm having a conversation with someone. Um, a couple things can happen. Either I see someone else that I'd rather have a conversation with. And so. And don't judge me on this. You do it too. Um, that I'm. Um, that I just kind of thinking in, in my head. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh huh. That's right. That's right. And I'm thinking. All right. How can I get out of this conversation? I'm going to talk to them. Uh huh. Uh huh. Yep. That's right. Uh, yep. Or while they're talking to me, I stop listening to them and I formulate all my things that I want to say back. And so the rest of the conversation they have, I just kind of letting it happen until I get my chance to say my thing. It's awful. We should be. Setting example in conduct, the way we, we interact with people is that we just, we listen. When someone happens, we don't, uh-huh, yeah, uh-huh, yeah. We, we, we listen to them. We, we give them their attention. That's just one example of conduct. There's a multiple, multiple, multiple examples of other things that we can do there. But that's just one example. And all your life, are you setting the example? The next one, love. This is real deep, I gotta start moving. Um, real deep love for people. Um, this is to your brothers in Christ. This is to your neighbors. This is to your enemies. Are you setting an example of true biblical love to them? What does it look like over the holidays <clears throat> for you in regard to those that are less fortunate to you? How giving are you? All your money going to just your family and just your kids or just your brothers, just your sisters, just your parents? Or is there, is there money you're giving away to people who won't have anything? All your stuff, do you give away just the clothes that were, you know, that you wore in 1988 that are out of style like 20 years ago? Those, I'm definitely not going to wear those. You can have those. Or there's some, some newer, nicer clothes that you're willing to hold loosely. Stuff you're willing to hold loosely. Is it just the stuff you know you'll never use so you can have that? Or is it a, an overflow of love that you care about them, that you're going to give them food, toys, clothing, whatever? This next one is faith. Um, you should set the example in faith. <clears throat> love is kind of horizontal dealing with men. That, that, that third one. This fourth one is faith. This is kind of vertical dealing with God. That we would have real deep personal affections for God. Real love for him. We're setting the example that we would have real love for Christ. The next one is purity. And <clears throat> you know it's amazing. It's amazing how good we think we're doing at this. But in reality, how bad we really are doing at this. And I'm not trying to cast judgment here, but I hear and I know of a lot of Christians who, who don't set the example in purity the way they should. Listen to this. Complete conformity. Purity is complete, complete conformity in thought, 
act and motives. Complete conformity in thought, act, and motives to God's desires. How are you doing here? We should be setting the example in purity. This is not just for unmarried people. This is for married. This is for every single person. Complete conformity to the desires of God in thought and act and in motive. The motive one can really, really get you. So don't just think because your thoughts and actions, thoughts and motives kind of go together. Just don't think because your outward actions aren't necessarily doing anything that your thoughts and your motives aren't still horribly wicked. We need to be the example in every single thing. All right, we're going to fly through these next two. Um, let's, let's go. Verse 11, until I come, he's talking to a pastor, until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. So he's telling him, number nine, in worship, telling a pastor he should be devoted to public reading of Scripture, exhortation and teaching. The reason why he's telling a pastor this is, <clears throat> first of all, they didn't have Bibles, generally, because this is the first century. They didn't have a ton of Bibles, had to be copies, didn't have a printing press, and there was illiteracy. So there was a need for public reading of Scripture, but it's still a great idea. That's why... If you come here week, week after week, you'll see that we do public reading. In together as a congregation, we'll read the scriptures. I'll read the scriptures to you. I'll exhort you. This is what exhortation means. It's to warn you both doctrinally and in regard to your morals. I'll warn you that you need to have right doctrine. And I'll also warn you that you need to live correctly. <clears throat> um, and it's also to advise you and also to encourage you. I need to work on the encouragement part. I'm aware. Not just in the advisement part, but it's both. Um, <clears throat> and I also need to teach you. It's not just that you should want to know God, but it's also that you should, in fact, know true things about God. I should teach you true things. So it's all these things. And if I do this as a pastor, and if you do this in your, if you're a dad in your families, if you do this to your brothers and your sisters in Christ, you teach them, you read scripture to them, you exhort them, then you can keep them from walking away. Um, and this is what we do here. We read scripture together. I preach to you um, verse by verse. Um, we pray together as a congregation, which we'll be doing next week. We sing together corporately, joining our hearts together to praise God. Um, the last one is this. Let's keep going. Until I come, verse 14. Do not neglect the gift which I have given you, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. All right. Um, <clears throat> he's talking about spiritual gifts. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit gives every single one of you a gift. This is the 10th one. Um, use your spiritual gift that you have been given. The church is dependent upon you to be the body. The church is dependent upon you to, to use your gift in the body. So you shouldn't neglect the gift that you've, been, that you've been given. You shouldn't be careless or lazy in the gift that you have. You should continually not wait necessarily even for the church to say, hey, could you use your gift? You should step out and actively pursue pouring out your gift into the body. Not just kind of passively waiting by, I wish someone would invite me to use my gift. You should, you should actively jump out and do it. <clears throat> um, use your spiritual gifts. Now, let's look at verse 15, because this is, this is where we start driving into the, to the conclusion. It says, practice these things. Now, <clears throat> my old ESV version says, devote yourself to them. You probably have immerse yourself um, in them. Both carry the same idea, devote, immerse yourself in these things. But <clears throat> this word um, devote, this word immerse in the Greek is be. So it's not like devote yourself. Well, I, I'm going to jump in those things. I'm going to kind of 
hop in. Maybe it'll work. It's not just immerse yourself and perhaps they'll kind of rub off on me. It's be. Be these things. Be these things. Have these things become so much a part of who you are that you are these things. It's who you are. Be these things so that all may see your progress. When you are these things, all see your progress in, your, in the faith. That's a good thing. We want people to see your progress. And when that happens, look what it tells us in verse 16. So keep a watch on yourself and on the teachings. Persist in this, for by doing so, all see your progress, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You'll save both yourself and your hearers. Let me read a text to you. This is Isaiah. Isaiah 55. This is what we're concluding with. It'll be up here on the screen. Um, Cameron, you can go ahead and come out. Isaiah 55 says this. Come. Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. Let's just think about this for a second. Come. Everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He's calling those that are thirsty to come to the waters. So here's the first question for you. Are you even thirsty? Are you even desiring Christ? Are you even thirsty for him? Or are you full on something else? Look what this it gets even more amazing as we look at this text. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Look what he says here. This is pretty amazing. The language and he who has no money. He's talking to people who have no No money whatsoever. And look what he tells them to do. Come buy. How how does that work? How do you buy stuff without money? He said, if you're thirsty, those that are thirsty, come here. And what I want you to do is, I want you to have no money at all, and I want you to buy something. Look what he says. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price talking about Christ. And look what he says. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you spend your life on things that aren't Jesus? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Why do you work on things that don't give you true satisfaction? Why don't you work on just knowing Christ? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear And come to me here that your soul may live. So. There are going to be people that are going to walk away. Perhaps you're there. You're on the you're on the point. And God is telling you to come. With nothing and get everything in Christ. Everything is found in him. It doesn't cost you anything. All of it was paid for by him on the cross. All made available to you if you would if you would believe. So where are you here? What's preventing you this morning from saying that's what I want in life? That's the kind of life I want. I want a life that counts. I want a life that saves. I want a life that makes a difference. In other people's lives. Or if you're not a Christian. I want 
I want a life that's forgiveness of sin, that doesn't experience hell, that, that treasures Jesus above everything else. What's it going to take for you to literally immerse, devote, be these things in your life? What's it going to take? Where are you falling short? Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to confess? Where do you need to make the decision today that I'm not going to do this anymore? I'm not going to walk down this path anymore. I'm not going to make these choices anymore. What's going to be the thing that's going to help you make the the next step or the final step towards Christ? What's keeping you back from being all that God wants you to be? Whatever it is, whatever it is, it's not more precious than Christ. He's calling you out to the the most precious reality in the world to himself. He will never let you down. He will always be there for you. You cannot find your satisfaction that your that your soul is desiring, that your soul is longing for in anything else but him. So why? Why would you labor for stuff that doesn't satisfy? Why? Don't neglect this calling this morning on your life right now. Don't neglect it. We know that God is going to be saving for all time. We know that in this life, he's going to continually be saving people. We know that some will leave, but he's going to be continually saving. And he wants to use you in that process. You get to join in on this big, huge thing going on, the salvation of souls. And he's asking you to come play your part well. To come play your part well. Don't miss out on this. Don't find yourself fooled by the world that you're having fun with whatever. But join in with what's going on, the most precious realities, which is Christ. So I just want to invite you this morning, wherever you are, to maybe find some time to confess, find some time to repent. Maybe you want to become a Christian this morning, or maybe you're resolved in your mind, that's what I want, and you're just going to stand and you're going to sing out with everything you have, with total inhibition. You don't care about what people think. You're going to stand and you're going to sing with us, just praising Christ for who He is. Be obedient to how the Holy Spirit's leading you. At the very end of the service, we'll have people to pray. If you need specific prayer, come on up. There'll be some girls up here. Girls, if you want specific prayer with a girl, um, there'll be some guys up here too, after our worship set. But I just pray that you be obedient to how God's leading you. Let me pray for us. God, I... Uh, I know that... Uh, Today was kind of lengthy, and I pray that, Lord, by your grace, it wasn't so long that it removed the ability for people to be able to focus on you. God, I pray that this morning you would have done the work that you promised to do by your scriptures, 
which is awaken affections, train us in righteousness, give a desire to want to know Christ, pursue Christ, convict us of sin, that we would confess and repent those things continually for the rest of our life and want to pursue Christ this morning, pursue Christ for our life, that we would join in what you're doing, the salvation of souls, and that we would get to be a part of it. And I pray, Lord, that Holy Spirit, you've come and inspired people to aspire to that. If there's anyone here who's been wayward, that they would come back. If anyone here who doesn't know you, that they would come to know you for the first time. That they would see Christ as the most precious reality and they would want him. And that we would all stand and sing and worship you and give you the honor and glory that you deserve and the worship that you deserve this morning. Give us focus this morning. Give us a heart for Christ. Pray these things in Jesus.